So the way this works is Diane is going to ask me questions collected from the internet audience and then it will be interspersed with questions from this uh, audience. So I will ask for people to raise their hands and I will call on, on you one by one. Not all of your questions will be answered. Only a fraction of the questions we get from the worldwide audience is ever answered. But as I said, one answer for all questions. After you hear Vedanta for a while, you begin to see the Swami is just saying the same thing all again and again. <laughs> That's true. I have only one thing to say. And the Upanishads and the Gita and I think the world's mystical traditions have one thing to say. That you are one with God. Swami Vivekananda said, oneness, that's the, the only religion that is. Ultimately, religion is oneness. But it can be expressed and should be expressed in different ways, depending on the question. Otherwise, it's not helpful. So that's what we'll try to do here. Don't wait for your question to come up and therefore remain deaf to all other questions. Uh, often I have seen the questions asked by somebody else and the answers to those questions are helpful for others who are listening carefully. So good. Let's start with the first question. Uh, the first question comes from Arnab K. from Toronto. And he has a question regarding the concept of the self in all beings and all beings in the self that you discussed recently in your talk on Ashtavakra Gita. He says, I understand how all beings are in the self, that this entire universe, including all beings, is just an appearance in the self. I also get how the self is in all beings from the perspective of Sat. However, I struggle to understand how the self is in all beings from a chit perspective. I don't understand how there is one consciousness shining in and through all these body minds. To draw parallels from the dream example, in a dream it feels like all the other people have consciousness in them. But after waking, I realize that there was no consciousness shining in any of them. There was only one person in that dream where consciousness was shining. How do I know that the waking world is not like that? How do I know that chit is shining in all beings? And if I can't know that for sure, how can I rule out a theory like Eka Jiva Vada? All right, big question. <laughs> and it's very sophisticated. Lots and lots of philosophy went into that. But I'll just latch on to one thing there. And listen carefully. This is the answer to the question, the direct answer. But then we will dilate a little more afterwards. But here's the direct answer. In the example which was just quoted, the dream example, which is very helpful for understanding Advaita Vedanta. Um, the person who's asking said that in the dream example, it seems I see many people and they all seem to have consciousness. But when I wake up, I see that there was only one person there with consciousness. That is, I, he means I, the dreamer. I was there in the dream. I was conscious. But all those other people just appeared in my dream. They were not actually persons with consciousness. He said that. There's only one person. Did he not say that? That line is there. There's only one person. But here, there isn't. There is no one person in that dream. 
you feel that because you wake up and you realize, oh, I was dreaming. But even when the dream was going on and you felt that there was, you were there in that one person, was that really a person? No, because there was no body there. It was a fig figment of your imagination. It was a dream. And there were uh, bits and pieces of thoughts excavated from your waking mind floating around as the impressions which generated that world of dreams and that so-called person who was experiencing that dream in the dream. Actually, what was there in a dream is the dreamer's mind. You, the dreamer, lying on the bed and dreaming, in your mind all this was going on. Just as you imagined the world there the objective world in the dream. The subject in the dream was also dreamt up. So you, the person, the dreamer, you were not actually there as that person uh, in the dream. It's not that there was one person in the dream with consciousness and nobody else was with consciousness. See, that's what happens when you wake up and you mix up the waking and the dreaming a little bit. Right? And that's helpful for understanding Advaita Vedanta. That's what's going on here. There is one consciousness, the Satyam, Yanam, Anandam, Brahma, which Patrick was chanting, one limitless consciousness. That alone appears as nature and as the soul. So I'm Vivekananda's language, as Prakriti and Purusha. That alone appears as subject and object. In that one consciousness, the objective world appears. And in that one consciousness, um, the subject who experiences this objective world appears and you feel I am the subject and here is the world but actually underlying both is one limitless consciousness so that's the example helps the dream example if you correct this a little bit you will get an answer to your question but let's go the question itself is pretty deep um, Sarvabhuteshu chatmanam Sarvabhutani chatmani this is the line he was quoting, not only in Ashtavakra, it's found in the Upanishads, it's found in the Bhagavad Gita, all beings in the self and the self in all beings. And he says, I can sort of understand how all beings are in the self. You know, you can think of the self as limitless existence. And obviously all beings are in limitless existence. Why? Why would you say obviously? Do all beings exist? Obviously. Otherwise you wouldn't even speak of them. Their man is, woman is, chair is, plant is, dog is, sky is, all living and non-living beings, you see, is, existence. So think of this isness as a limitless ocean of existence, in which all beings are like waves. Ashtavakra sings, May ananta maham ashcharyam jiva vichaya I am a limitless ocean of existence. I means, all of us can claim that. There's a limitless ocean of existence. And in that, how strange, how wonderful are the sentient beings who come up as waves. What do they do once they have come up? Udyanti, gnanti, khelanti, pravishanti, swabhavata. They come up, they are born. And what do they do? Khelanti, play. Gnanti, fight. Then, pravishanti, they disappear, they die. I remember this verse particularly because I have a very clear memory of being in Gangotri with a radical non-dualist Swami studying Dashtavakra Gita and he's teaching this in Hindi at that time. Uh, but I remember how he was teaching it. It's so vivid. This is the Ganga Bhagirathi rushing by 
several hundred feet below this towering the real giants there they have you know 15 20000 feet all around uh, in the and the the valley where we are sitting that's a valley but the valley itself is 10000 feet uh, in the himalayas in that stunning spectacular scenery the swami was explaining this verse i remember and he says the way he explained it udyanti they are born kelanti and he i still remember he was a jolly old swami in his 80s and huge hugely obese more of that little later <laughs> hugely obese uh, and uh, he was saying they are born udyanti kelanti he is saying i love you i love you gnanti i'm going to divorce you i'm going to divorce you <laughs> they fight Uh, Ukraine war nowadays. You see a fight, and then what is the result of all of that? Provision they disappear back into the source. They die. But why? Why are they born? Why do they love and play? Why do they fight and uh, hate each other? And why do they die again? Swabhavata. By their very nature. What is that very nature? The causality, cause and effect. The karma. past karma is upon them that produces these bodies and drives these sentient beings through a certain course of life there are the causes you really can't blame anybody they they are all propelled by a certain set of causes behind them notice how each one of us no matter what what we are how awful we are in the eyes of others we feel pretty self justified because of these reasons i am doing this the other person is doing that as a very awful person why are they doing it but you are doing the exactly same thing but yeah but there's a reason for why i am doing it <laughs> but the other person also feels they have reason and they are right and you are right also there are reasons and those reasons are causality the whole of advaita vedanta wants to say that this causality is a dream it's an appearance underlying it is one infinite limitless ocean of existence well good for the ocean of existence but i am in trouble no you are that ocean of existence now about eka jeeva vada which he raised um oh before i forget the obesity of the swami <laughs> <laughs> the swami is pa- passed now he is uh, he passed away a f- few years ago the most amazing teacher so and very funny too so he was sick obviously being so overweight and the doctor came to see him and the doctor said i'll try I'll tell you in hindi and then translate into english aap kya khate hain swami ji itne mote ho gaye hain what do you eat swami you become so so fat so uh, uh, overweight and the doctor was thin and sickly so the swami said he chuckled and he said uh, in hindi that uh, uh हम चिंता को चबा जाते हैं इसीलिए मोटापन है और चिंता तुम्हें चबा जाती है डॉक्टर बाबू सो चिंता इज एंगजाइटी टेंशन स्ट्रेस सो आई ईट इट अप आई गॉबल इट अप एंड बिकॉज ऑफ ऑल दैट जंक फूड आई बिकम बट आई आई टू इट अप आई गॉबल अप स्ट्रेस एंड फियर एंड एंगजाइटी एंड स्ट्रेस एंड फियर एंड एंगजाइटी दे गॉबल यू अप डॉक्टर <laughs> you are being worn out by your worries and stress and is he was like that all right back to philosophy ek jeeva vada the the view that there is only one person now straight off those who are trained in philosophy will say aha solipsism solipsism means the feeling the idea that only i exist why would that come 
what, what a crazy idea. Well, it would come because actually of our dream experiences where we see a lot of people. Um, but when we wake up, there was I feel I was the only one there. there was, everybody else was in my dream. How do we know that this is not so in the waking also? And especially when we study Advaita Vedanta, the, the margins, the boundaries between dream and waking become blurred. On purpose, they are blurred. And so we might feel, in this world also it's like a dream. Vedanta keeps telling me it's like a dream, an illusion. So I am the only one there. And the, all these other people, there's no audience. I'm just fooling myself with Ask Swami. So it's I alone who I'm asking the questions and I alone trying to answer the questions. So I might be the only one here. Eka Jeeva. And yet I am not enlightened. So I am not the absolute reality, Brahman. I am, the, I am a sentient being. How many sentient beings, how many Jeevas are there? One. Although I can see a hundred, I, I say there's only one. Who? I. Now this is actually a view, a school of thought in Advaita Vedanta. And what would be the goal of this thing? That I am there and still I don't feel enlightened and I'm still suffering and I still feel that others might be part of a dream that I'm dreaming. Um, so I have to wake up from the dream and realize that Satyam, Jnana, Manantam, Brahma, infinite existence, consciousness, place. From that perspective, no more problems. So that single individual being, sentient being, has to break out of that one being's dream and awaken to reality which is infinite existence so that's that is a school of thought it's a sub school and there's a good reason why it's a sub school because if you look at the, the mainstream non duality advaita vedanta um, shankar upanishads gita they don't speak in that way they speak exactly the way we speak there is a world there are people and we are also we are one of many and we are all trying to become enlightened good this is what, how we feel more or less about the world. And this is how the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, they talk all the texts of Vedanta, most of them, not all, but most of them talk in this way. So what's going on here? What's going on is, none of them are right. Bahujivavada, many sentient beings. Ekajivavada, one sentient being. None of them are supposed to be descriptions of truth. What is the truth then? Satyam Jnana Manantam Brahma Infinite existence, consciousness, place Advaitans will say how many times do I have to tell you? There's only one reality One existence, consciousness, place Then what about all this? Many living beings, one living being Many sentient beings, one sentient being It's because we see the world in that way And we have to be helped out of it If Advaita Vedanta is right Then there's one ultimate reality And this is a relative reality then in this relative reality, Vedanta has to begin here. Any good teacher has to start where the student is and then take the student to what is, no, from, from the near to the far, from what is to what shall be, from the um, known to the unknown. That's the principle of good teaching. You think there, are, there is a world? Of course, good, there is a world. <laughs> That's what Vedanta says. It doesn't mean it at all. Let's say there's a world, granting you that. You think there are lots of other people? Yes, at least the teacher and I, we are, at least two of us are there. Good, let's start there. So that's how most Vedanta operates. But there, there's this school which does not operate that way. Who can, so these are ways of becoming enlightened. Who can take which way? So it's very clear that among the monks in the Himalayas that it depends on vairagya, dispassion, detachment from the world. If you are a completely detached monk, 
there's no two two ways of putting it. You have to be a monk completely detached from the world, not even like me sitting in Manhattan in an ashram. Yeah. You have to be completely detached from the world. Then that kind of paradigm, it's a paradigm that there is only one sentient being in this universe and it's you. That will work. Won't it lead to narcissism and all? Because you are, but it won't because you're not supposed to stop there. You're supposed to begin there and go into the impersonal absolute. Why at all then these views have come up? Because there is a logical force behind these views. Yeah. That's why this person has come up with this uh, uh, this question. If you think deeply about Advaita, uh, and especially the difference between waking and dreaming is not sharp, then you will come to this feeling that maybe I'm the only one here. But that's the just the beginning point, and it will work for you if you have, if you are detached, if you are monastic, if you have strong renunciation, no connections with the world. Is it possible to have such a life? Yes, yes, it's possible in the mountains. I have experienced it myself. You could easily, you know, I I remember I was just there for a few months each time, and I remember the world seems to melt away and disappear there in those Himalayan fastnesses, in the in the heights there. it just fades away into into a mist a distant mist so it's possible but if you try to do it in an inappropriate setting like this you have a job you have a family you have you are in a network of relationships if you try to do this here it will become dysfunctional and it will lead to so much trouble your spiritual life will be wrecked your worldly life also will be in trouble and your spiritual life will be wrecked it's not meant to be used in that way and remember there's no need you know the people think it's cool ekajiva vada um it's they feel it's it's uh, more sophisticated than the non dualism which is taught the swami the swami normally says this is more sophisticated than that don't do it because you will not get a better brahman a better ultimate reality by following ekajiva vada brahman plus <laughs> brahman advanced <laughs> brahman for the really really cool non dualists No, you will come to the same reality. All right, we'll stop at that. Let's have a question from the audience. Will you raise your hand? Okay, the lady here. You have to come there next to Diane. Tell us your name and ask the question, but limit it to one question at a time. Thank you, Swami. I'm honored to be here. My name is Mira. I heard your lecture yesterday on the Gita, and you discussed consciousness as an experiencing, and you, we were just discussing dreams, which ties into my question. The purpose of my question is to make sleep part of my spiritual practice, to improve my sleep quality, and to become, to relate my sleep while I'm sleeping into an actual spiritual practice of my life. When I look at consciousness and my experience with it. I have three different experiences. One, during an accident when I was fortunate enough to be able to detach and reach that place of white peacefulness where you're aware of other beings but you feel yourself dissolving, which I guess is consciousness expanding. You may feel you're going up but you're not. You're simply expanding. Then there's that feeling of you know when you're meditating and you get your brain into the right vibration and it opens up that black hole into that peacefulness but no one's there you don't have a sense of any other beings but just of peacefulness so now you don't have that consciousness of other people at all just the consciousness of pure bliss and peace 
than when you go to sleep. I've been told um, or read also that try to be aware while you're falling asleep. And you have that feeling of being almost sucked into your body like a black hole. And you feel that bliss. Where is my consciousness at that point? Is it going into um, almost like a black hole that persides in our, I believe, by our heart or in our brain? Or I is it expanding? I think I understand, yes. Advaita Vedanta, which is what we are discussing here, is not about feeling. It's about knowing. And therefore, Advaita Vedanta is done in the waking state, in full alertness of mind, when we can inquire clearly. It uses sleep as a powerful tool for understanding who we are or what consciousness truly is. Now to answer your question directly, the three experiences you talk about, the experience of dissociating from the world, body, mind, in a sudden shock of an accident, it happens. I've heard this earlier. One. The experience of floating out into uh, uh, impersonal space in meditation. And when you try to track yourself down into sleep, that experience, the feeling you get when you fall asleep, like being sucked into a black hole. All of this, all three experiences are the mind. They are the mind. Whenever there is change, from this to that, mind. Whenever there is expansion, mind. Whenever there is contraction, mind. Whenever there is alert, I feel more conscious. No, no, no. Advaita Vedanta will say that's mind. I feel dull. That's mind. And I'm awake, dreaming, deep sleep. That's mind. Consciousness, according to Advaita Vedanta, is one and the same all throughout. Whether you're awake whether you're dreaming, whether you're in deep sleep, or you means the mind. Uh, the mind is in awake, dreaming, or deep sleep. Whether the mind is dissociating in a sudden moment of being knocked off its normal way, way of functioning. It could be by an accident. It could be by a meditative technique. Consciousness is still the same. And to come to see that through a process of inquiry in the waking state, once you see that, you will see your feelings also will fall into line. The other way around, using our feelings to understand what, what we truly are, to, to come to realization, that will also work. But there's a lot of hit and miss there. And that requires a skilled guide. It's, it's the right kind of feeling which will point to consciousness as we are. Otherwise, there are many kinds of feelings. And then you will get a feeling of expanding consciousness, contracting consciousness, consciousness being sucked into a black hole, a consciousness suddenly diffusing from the world, body, mind, all those things you said. Is it invalid? No. There is a whole set of techniques which does exactly what you do, what you said. You're not supposed to go into an accident, but there are techniques which simulate that. So what I'm talking about is, at least two traditions I know, they have whole sets of techniques to do that. One is Kashmiri Shaivism, in the text called Vigyana Bhairava. 112 techniques are there. Some of them are sudden techniques. Like what happens to the mind suddenly when it's exposed to a dramatic shift like an accident. 
but then they you you can't keep putting people into accidents in the hope they'll get enlightened <laughs> now but this they simulate so for example there are very interesting techniques one is sky gazing you lie down in an open field central park is very good at this time of the, of the year for that it's a beautiful day out there by the way you lie down there and if there's an infinitely clear and blue sky you look this is open eyes meditation you look into it now notice it's vast blue without limit you can't see the ground just blue and endless vast blue it's space and a luminous space it's material it's so you are supposed to intensely focus on the limitless blueness luminosity of that vast space and then in a moment this is this is the dramatic part of it in a moment close your eyes and you will feel the absence of that vast blue space but you are the awareness in which the vast blue space was appearing drop that drop that awareness too with that still the mind what happens then you can't say if you try to know what happens then the mind will kick in again and you it's much better what to go into these short samadhis instead of the long one for untrained yogis like most of us if you try to prolong deep meditation what will happen is which we're supposed to do in yoga if you try to prolong it in our case what will happen is the mind will kick in and start working again so it's much better to keep short circuiting the mind once in a while so this is vigyana bhairava exactly like that there is another very similar set of techniques in um, the tibetan dzogchen tradition tibetan dzogchen tradition so this is a whole and very sophisticated very interesting area uh, it depends upon your predilections what what attracts you remember all those techniques they are all techniques to point to the same reality which advaita vedanta is pointing to but advaita vedanta is not those techniques advaita vedanta is a process of inquiry where you see the data collected in waking dreaming deep sleep and ponder over it with the help of the pointers from the upanishads and the advaitic texts and then you come to see not just intellectually very very vividly i think that's all i can say all right thank you thank you We'll take the next question. Next question, yes. So this is another Ashtavakra question, Swamiji. Oh. Uh, it's from Sindhu P. Swamiji, I have listened to your talks on Ashtavakra Samhita. I understand that the subtle and causal body leave the physical body during death. and travel to acquire another physical body atma or consciousness is unique and universal and the same for all what about a realized person will the jiva then have any more individual identity or individual awareness will they be distinct as a drop of water reaching the ocean of consciousness or will their identity merge with the one ocean All right, that's another deep and difficult question. What happens after enlightenment? <laughs> that's assuming that uh, I am enlightened and I am capable of answering what happens after enlightenment. That's assuming a lot. 
But a little bit I know from my study and my experiences with people I think who are enlightened and what we have heard and seen in the tradition, I can tell you a little bit. So, again from the Advaitic perspective. Remember, Ashtavakra is radical non-dualism. And Ashtavakra gives you sort of a perspective from the top of the Everest. From the highest perspective. So, I mean, Vivekananda says that in India, philosophy has reached such Himalayan heights. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact uh, words. Where human lungs can scarce breathe. <laughs> So it's a view from the top, but it's a very uncomfortable view. It's all, it is very impersonal. And it, I've heard in different ashrams, people have told me, then somebody comes up with a question like this, and the Swami in the ashram says, Have you been listening to Sarva Priyananda? <laughs> <laughs> and the Swami said, in, Invariably it turns out that that person has been listening to one of the Ashtavakra talks. All right. Straight answer. What happens after enlightenment? Does the person retain an individuality? Um, no, because we don't have an individuality even now. Even if we are non-enlightened, uh, suppose we think we are, we are non-enlightened, we think we are individual sentient beings, but according to Advaita Vedanta, that's just plain wrong. What's the fact right now? Uh, you are Brahman, right now. It's not that after we realize that we are Brahman, that we become Brahman. Look at the language. Does it merge into Brahman? Does the raindrop fall into the ocean and then merge? So assuming it was a raindrop earlier. The problem is such examples are used by Advaita masters. We have to be careful when the examples are used. The limited individuality set up by the, as he said, the, the physical body, the subtle body and the causal body, that gives the impression of being a raindrop. But according to Advaita Vedanta, there never was a raindrop. Always there was this limitless ocean of, even ocean is, is an example. That was the truth always. Now, because we don't at all feel that, it's no use saying all those things to us. Now we have to be helped to realize that. Then a lot of metaphors are used. One raindrop falling, Shankara himself uses this metaphor, raindrop falling into the ocean and becoming one with the ocean. But then the reality is, if you ask, and the enlightened one. So where you were raindrop and you fell into the ocean, became one with it, where you were an individual being, then you became enlightened, now you are Brahman? Of course not. I just realized I and everybody else, we always were this reality. We just didn't see it. Now we see it. Otherwise the language of merging can lead to, I'm trying to merge with the infinite. I'm sort of 30% merged and 50% merged, almost 95% merged with the infinite. You are the infinite. Didn't you hear him singing? Satyam, Jnana, Manantam, Brahma. Infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. So that's great for infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. But what about me? You are that. Oh, yeah, only after I become enlightened. No, you are that now. That Swami I mentioned, the Obi Swami who was talking about uh, Ashtavakra, he used to say that um, he, often he would repeat. I'll tell you the Hindi and then re- translate. This is a very uh, strange paradoxical philosophy. Whether you know it or not, whether you accept it or not, 
you are ram you are god but god of course we have to be very careful with what he means by god it's absolute reality not ishwara the god of this universe that is that is really really god ashtavakra himself sings the ocean metaphor look at the ocean metaphor three levels of understanding of this mai ananta maham bodau विश्वपोतस्तत भ्रमति स्वातवातेन न महिष्णुता इन मी द लिमिटलेस ओशन ऑफ एक्जिस्टेंस द लिटल बोट ऑफ द यूनिवर्स फ्लोट्स हिदर एंड हिदर वाय स्वातवातेन प्रोपेल्ड बाय एन इनर विंड नॉर्मली इज अ विंड इन द ओशन एंड ऑन द ओवर द ओशन विच विच ड्राइव्स अ सेल बोट but here the boat has its own wind what it is what's internal the wind internal to the boat i guess they didn't have propellers at that time and engines so they had to come up with this an inner wind what is the inner wind causality again because of causality which is entirely limited to the world it moves in various ways sometimes things go well sometimes things don't go well sometimes there is birth sometimes old age and disease and death sometimes it is ill health sometimes good health sometimes success the stock market is up sometimes it's a bear market and so on why causes and conditions causality and all of that limited to the little boat floating in an endless ocean what is that endless ocean you what's it made of what exactly is it existence being and it's a shining being awareness so in me the limitless ocean of being awareness the little boat of this universe is floating in various ways sometimes doing well sometimes seeming to sink what is my attitude as the uh, endless ocean na mamasti asahishnuta i have no uh, impatience i i have no intolerance i forbear it's nothing to me when it's doing well the boat is racing along nicely good little boat you're doing well when it's not oh try to do better but i'm the infinite ocean i'm all right i'm all right and remember what is he saying normally we think there is a vast ocean of unknown this universe space and time in that i'm a tiny little being destined to i was born the day other day and i'm going to be destined to be crushed out of existence in a few days he reverses it ashtavakra you are the infinite in you the universe is in you are like an ocean and in you the universe itself not just one person not just one life the universe itself is a little boat and you are not impatient with its ways and this is just superficial the first level there are three levels to this can it go any deeper yes remember boat and ocean are still different there's a boat which is not the ocean so the next level goes deeper it merges this difference mai ananta maham bhodau vishwa vichi swabhavata udetu vastamayatu name vriddhi navakshati i am an infinite ocean of existence in me the universe arises as a wave let it arise let it subside i neither gain nor lose in in a ocean 
one wave arises is the ocean in- increased thereby no the wave subsides is the ocean reduced thereby no even if a tsunami wave arises ocean is not increased even if tsunami waves uh, fades away into the ocean the ocean is not reduced if birth comes i have gained nothing if youth and health and success and uh, an ivy league education and being a millionaire on wall street comes i have not increased one bit if the stock market crashes and i am homeless on the streets i have not lost one bit i am the same ocean of existence what proof you can say all this is terrible answer from vedanta is be patient wait a little it'll all go away again <laughs> you know the buddhist monk who came to the uh, kingdom and the king said oh monk i have so many you know, the king was his friend so the monk said uh, how are you oh king the king said i have so many problems uh, the kingdom is surrounded by enemies the ministers are corrupt prince is indolent and not learning his duties i don't know what will happen and there is a drought and the people are starving and the monk said oh king this too shall pass and then he went away a decade later he was back in the same kingdom older the king also was older and the monk asked oh king how are you oh it's really good since things have turned up uh, since you last came and the enemies have we have made peace with them and there is a bountiful harvest and the ministers have been replaced and the prince has turned out really quite well you know so things are things are really really good uh, they're all looking up and oh king this too shall pass <laughs> they say and then um, an optimist what do you say optimist and pessimist a pessimist is one who sees the long dark tunnel an optimist is one who sees the light at the end of the tunnel but the realist is the one who sees the long dark tunnel and the light at the end of the tunnel and the next dark tunnel ahead <laughs> so ashtavakra says let it arise let it subside it's all right i am that infinite ocean i have not gained a little bit by the wonderful things happening in the world and i have not lost a little bit by the terrible things happening in my life or in the world you see that might lead to um kind of callousness no it won't that argument things will lead to callousness you just need to look at the lives of the saints they are the least callous of all people we are callous we really don't care we just make arguments for caring for the world in order to escape being spiritual be spiritual you will care much more for the world all right but this is the second level it goes even deeper मय्यनमहांबोधौ विश्व नाम विकल्पना अतिशातो निराकार एकदेवाहमास्थित थर्ड लेवल आई एम दट इन्फिनिट ओशन ऑफ एक्सिस्टेंस बट नाउ इट्स अ काम ओशन देर आर नो वेब्स वॉट आई सॉट वॉज द यूनिवर्स वॉज जस्ट दैट इमेजिनेशन माइंड इज इमेजिनेशन एंड द थॉट्स इन द माइंड आर ऑल्सो इमेजिनेशन इट्स एन अपियरेंस इन कॉन्शियसनेस therefore what am i atishanta nirakara formless there is no real world there out there even when it's all appearing and atishanta shanta peaceful atishanta deeply quiet peaceful serene beyond the possibility of disturbance see the peace of the mind it can come but you can be restless also the mind can lose its peace but the peace that passeth understanding 
that cannot be disturbed and that's our real nature upanishad calls you shanta not that you have to be peaceful shanta is peace you are peace itself the mind is sometimes peaceful sometimes without peace the body is sometimes healthy sometimes without health the world and its community are sometimes peaceful sometimes without peace but you are peace itself with beyond the possibility of disturbance yes i'll leave it at that the gentleman there please come mamiji please come here come here i can ask the question tell us your name and ask the question my name is kailash i travel all the way from india to see you <laughs> thank you <laughs> speak into the microphone and yeah. i have of course uh, i want i want to thank you for all the knowledge i got from youtube listening to you many many times and i'm uh, i feel the same way arjuna might have felt when he saw the vishwarupa of krishna namo namaste asu sahasrakritva apnashtu bhoyo namo namaste as well i feel inside so i mean the only question that after understanding everything and i think i don't have a question but I always get stuck on the on the concept of mithya world this world is mithya and i think 99% of all of us get stuck in that concept because we're living in it the the part that confuses me the same mithya world that gave us ramakrishna vivekananda krishna arama uh, they came as incarnation and they promised that they will come in this waking world and guide us time and time again same waking world is de- is uh, degraded to being mithya and it is not is not real but the same waking world is the karma bhumi that is the ac- uh, place of action and that's where our path is uh, given a this path for different people different path and and that's where whoever comes and uh, chooses the path and and reaches uh, salvation so this is as real as uh, and also at the same time mithya meaning uh, it confuses uh, many times i think i see your meaning why do we call this world false what good does it do and how is it false these are the questions and, and this is in the very world in which you are discussing advaita vedanta this is the very world in saints and incarnations have come and this is all that we know right so the straight answer to your question is you don't have to take it as mithya remember mithya falsity uh, falsity is a part of the doctrine of advaita vedanta but that's just one approach among many approaches you need not take it as false you can take it as real as real as everybody else takes it you don't have to worry about it uh, so that's one approach if you do that however what will happen is if this world is real in in what sense real means out there there is a i see a chair what's it it's a chair i see a man a woman what's it man woman world everything is real out there as i see it what's wrong with that nothing in that case what you are going to talk about what you are going to seek god you know the impersonal reality brahman it must be something other than this world is it no it can be this world itself if it is this world itself then why call it religion you become a materialist you're chasing the world notice 
if you take this world as it is then your god becomes a separate god because then are you trying to attain a chair or a table or a man or a woman or a money a pleasure what are you trying to attain that's all that the world can give you this is the world then god becomes a separate reality no problem there that is dualistic approach if god becomes a separate reality apart from you apart from the world then you have to set up a relationship with god god is the father or for sri ramakrishna god is the mother for arjuna god is the friend for yashoda or mother mary god is the child for radha god is the beloved relationship bhakti so that is the dualistic approach no problem there or you could have that um, it is real and it's all god also that also is possible there is one infinite divinity and we are, this is also all divine and this divine this is included in that infinite divinity and we have to realize that this is divine somehow or the other this all pervaded by divinity god alone is all of this you can also do that that is called vishishta advaita these are all vast sophisticated philosophical systems qualified monism or you can say god alone exists the whole thing is an appearance in god appearance is another name for appearance is mithya or falsity notice in which of the three systems is god given maximum importance in the third one in the first one world is there i am there and there is something else called god no matter how important how beautiful whatever but still quite different from the world and from me god is reduced by that much second one god is there but we have distinct god has distinct parts like people and things and all third one god alone is nothing else is all appears in god swami vivekananda says when mary hale wrote to him i have understood what you have taught god is everything or everything is god swami vivekananda said i've never taught such strange doctrine <laughs> and she was taken aback she said you say these things and swami vivekananda he says what i meant was see i might have said it i mean many times he says god is everything but i might have said it but what he says what i meant was god alone is everything is not that is advaita vedanta now what good does it do twofold good one is apparent and one is at the surface one is the deep um, application in spiritual life what does it do for us there's a philosophical side to falsity whereby argument you try to show the falsity of the world it's a difficult job because it seems very real to us you know one thing why does it seem very real to us because what when we say what is the world is which is false when you tell people like that what they normally take is here this world and they're telling us this is false it's like snake appearing as ro- uh, rope appearing as snake when you say the snake is false but what it does not mean that there's nothing there there is something there there's a rope there similarly when the advaitin says this world is false it doesn't mean the normal way people take it the usual way immediately think people think the oh, they are dismissing everything but then i'm left with nothing i don't know anything else but no 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 when you dismiss this you are throwing away the baby with the bath water the reality is here where you see the snake there you see the rope 
Where you are seeing world and people and body and mind, there the enlightened one is seeing Brahman, God, divinity, existence, consciousness, bliss. I'm using the word God in a very general sense, in a very philosophical sense. So this is the deep meaning of the falsity of the world. What is the meaning of the falsity of the world? If the world is false, there must be a truth. What is that truth? You can't just have falsity. If somebody tells a lie, hey, that's false. That means there's a truth. There's a truth. So what's the truth? If the world is false, what's the truth? Brahman is the truth. Where will you find the truth? Where you are seeing falsity. Where will you find the rope? Where you are seeing snake. Sankaracharya gives a succinct definition, very powerful statement. Atasmin tad buddhi. What is not there, you see there. Snake is not there, you see a snake. That, that snake is false, but the reality is right there. That's a rope. You are seeing world and people and good and bad. The reality is right there. It's God. It's ex existence consciousness place. One unlimited existence. So um, this is the deep meaning of falsity of the world. But the advantage is it is giving you direct access to reality. By saying what you are seeing is not as it should be. Then what as it should be, the reality is right there, right now. And in fact, it's you. When I say I see myself as this little person, that's false. You are Brahman. So what you are seeing as I, what I am seeing as I, me, myself, Sarva Priyananda, Advaita says, please investigate this itself, your favorite subject, <laughs> yourself. <laughs> investigate this. What, what can be more interesting to you than yourself? Please investigate this. You will find God. Sri Ramakrishna's words in Bengali, Manush nije ke chinte parle, ishwar ke chinte pare. When the human being realizes who he or she is, he finds God. So this is the, this is, you say, oh, this is great, this is Advaita Vedanta, yes, but this is predicated upon the falsity of the world. If the world is not false, then this God you have to look elsewhere. Yeah, for God. What is the secondary benefit of it? The secondary benefit is, we are very attached to the world. And that's what's stopping us. You see, it's not philosophy which is stopping us. The philosophy of Advaita Vedanta is not difficult to understand. So in Vivekananda says, many people come to an understanding, few realize on this path. So there's a difference between just understanding it and realizing it. And how do I know whether I've understood or realized it? Just check the benefits. It's supposed to take you beyond sorrow. It's supposed to give you fulfillment. Are you honestly, truly beyond sorrow? Are you honestly, truly fulfilled? If, I, if you say no, if we say not really, and then it might be understanding, but it's certainly not realization. Uh, so this attachment to the world, this desire is at the root of all spiritual problems. And this falsity, doctrine of falsity, uh, it cuts at the very root of that desire. Everybody knows that the world is temporary. Even this Q&A session is temporary. So don't worry. <laughs> People will be like, how long is he going to go on? <laughs> it's temporary. This too shall pass. <laughs> this too shall pass. But that does not remove our attachment to the world. I know the cookie is temporary. Who cares? Who wants an eternal cookie anyway? I want a temporary cookie and I want to enjoy it. Huh? I know the movie is temporary. Great. I don't want an endless movie. I want to enjoy this temporary movie, this temporary cookie. I know life is temporary. Things in the life are, tem are uh, impermanent. That does not remove our, does not shake our desire for the world. But notice, the moment we clearly, honestly believe this world to be an appearance, your desire immediately disappears. 
fear also disappears. Fear and desire, terror and temptation, they are predicated on supposing something to be real. Notice in the dreams, we are scared in the dreams. We are terrified or tempted in the dreams as long as we dream. When we wake up, we still remember what we saw. But we are not scared anymore. We are not terrified anymore. Why? Because the falsity has been proved. Notice a movie. Horror movie. Tragedy. In a horror movie, we can enjoy it. But you are not really horrified by it. A tragedy, it does not traumatize you for life. You can, you can cry in the movie and still have aesthetic enjoyment. Why? Because falsity is proved. If it was real, I always give the, uh, this example of King Kong, the great gorilla who it seems to attack New York. So you can enjoy King Kong climbing the Empire State Building, huge gorilla. And people can clap and cheer and uh, enjoy it and ooh and ah. But if a little, actual little monkey came into this, the movie theater, they would all evacuate the theater. They'll all run screaming out, out of the theater. Why? What's the difference between King Kong, the giant King Kong, and the little monkey? Giant King Kong is proved to be, is taken to be false appearance. Not a source of real terror. Even the terror that it evokes is a delicious thrill. So that's the, that's the benefit, spiritual benefit of falsity of the world. But yet, again, as I say, you don't have to take it as false. There are there are paths, there are different paths. And by the way, it might surprise you. In Hindu philosophy, Hindu philosophy, the only system which takes the world to be false is Advaita Vedanta. Nyaya takes the world to be real. Vaisheshika takes the world to be real. Um, Sankhya takes the world to be real. Yoga, Patanjali's yoga takes the world to be real. Purva Mimamsa takes the world to be real. It's only... In Vedanta, that too, Advaita Vedanta, which takes the world to be unreal or an appearance. Um, the other Vedanta systems, the dualistic system, qualified monistic, even Shuddha Advaita, Dvaita Advaita, all these systems, they all take the world to be real. The world to be an appearance and consciousness alone to be real, that's Advaita Vedanta. But it has a lot in common with multiple systems in Buddhism. That's why Advaitins were always charged by other Hindus. Are you guys really Hindus or are you Buddhists? So Shankara was attacked. Prachanna Bauddha. You are crypto-Buddhists, hidden Buddhists. <laughs> there is an attack by the dualists. Um, so sometimes we are, there is a pejorative term, Mayavadi. You are teachers of Maya, the illusion of the world. That's what you talk about. So we we are we can become defensive. We say no, Brahmavadi nafayam. We are teachers of Brahman, the absolute reality. Um, then the dualists come back with this response: Vayamapi Brahmavadi na kovishesha. We are also teachers of the way of Brahman. What is the uniqueness of uh, of your teaching? The uniqueness of your teaching that means the non-dualist teaching is the falsity of the world, is it not? And we have to say yes, that's so. So the uniqueness of your teaching is Maya, yes, and that Maya is Mithya. False. So you are Mayavadis. Well, in that sense, maybe. So you are Mithyavadis. You are <laughs> your teachers of falsity. You are false teachers. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, one more question from the audience. All right. Uh, I'll, but this, the gentleman at the, right at the back has been raising his hand for some time. Please come up, and then we'll take a question from the internet audience next. 
please come up tell us your name and ask the question my name is Wally Muhammad assalamu alaikum um, my question goes to something that I read in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna um, there is a reference getting back to the ocean of going into the black water hmm. and who would be there to report on it can you elucidate on that please alright so in those days there was this idea that when you go into the deep ocean Nobody comes back. Kalapani, they would go. And uh, also, uh, the colonial government would send people across that into, into jails for people who revolted against the colonial power. So nobody crosses the black waters. That was a kind of saying. Similarly, Sri Ramakrishna would use these as metaphors. When you plunge mentally, in the mind, into that reality, and that can be, what, what do I mean by plunge? Didn't you just say, Swami, that we are that reality? Yes, you are that reality. But the mind which is investigating this can now be stilled in meditation. It's called samadhi. Right? And uh, then the mind is stilled, but not asleep. It's like being fully awake in deep sleep, if you can wrap your mind around that. Fall asleep, you're not aware of the external world. You're not aware of the physical body. You're not aware of the mind. You're not even aware of that I am sleeping. If you're aware of that, you're not sleeping. And in sleep, you're deep in deep sleep. But here you're awake. You're fully awake. The world is blanked out. The body and the senses and the mind is also blanked out. And yet you are endlessly aware. From an external perspective, you might see to be not aware of anything. Sri Ramakrishna goes into Samadhi many times. So many people saw this. Not only that, he would become as still. The description always was, he becomes like a picture. As still as a picture. A doctor examined him. Heartbeat stopped. Breathing stopped. They touched the eyeball. No reflex. It's like being dead. Not only being unaware, actually being dead or in deep coma. And yet, when he was asked, are you unconscious at that time? No. Sri Ramakrishna's response was, does one meditating on consciousness become unconscious? So it's only consciousness, but no object to it. There's no object, no limited object, which is, you're, you're aware of a limited object. All right. Now there are many of these states. They are studied in a system called yoga. It's not just one samadhi. Samadhis are of different grades and different types. Now the point being asked here is, so it is, you are aware and what is it like exactly? Well, two things. And that state, obviously, you can't speak. Because there is, from your perspective, there's no world, there's nobody to speak to, there's no body, there's no speech, there's not even a mind. Coming back from that state, arising from that state in the sense that the body-mind starts functioning again. You're clearly aware of, you means the mind now is clearly aware of what, what happened there. But there is no way of expressing it at all. Only approximations can be there. And those approximations are basically the basis of all religion. The way the masters in different religions have pointed it out. And mystics who have realized it have pointed towards it. And many practices which will help you to reach that. Another example he uses the salt doll who went to measure the ocean. And if a salt doll goes to measure the ocean, 
First of all, measuring the ocean is impossible for the dog. Second, can it do so? The moment it enters the ocean, it becomes the ocean. It floats up into the ocean, becomes the ocean. There's no individual left who will come back and say that the ocean is like this. Even when in Jivan Mukta, the person actually comes back in the sense, it seems to from our perspective that a person has come back. From that person's perspective, there's no more person anymore. And there is no way of describing that. There are ways of pointing it out, which can help others. I don't know if that answered your question. Yes, thank you. Thank you. This question is from Dona. Swamiji, if one cannot afford to take up sannyas formally due to some constraints and yet wants to live like a sannyasin, what are the necessary ideals, do's and don'ts, instructions that the person should follow while living in the world? Sannyasin is a monk. It's a name for a Hindu monk. But basically monastic values are same all over. And there are monks in Hinduism, Jainism. Jainism is a very strongly monastic system. So is Buddhism. Hinduism and Christianity both have strong monastic traditions, but also a lot of lay traditions. Of course, Buddhism and Jainism also have strong lay traditions. You can't have a religion without a lay tradition. The religion would disappear. If nobody has children, then who, who will follow that religion? So, But they were, their origins were primarily monastic. Buddhism and Jainism. So that shows in the religion and the teachings. Alright, that's a good question. Why? First of all, spirituality, enlightenment is for everybody. Just as in every sphere of life, like engineering or mathematics or what, you, you can use the products of engineering. We are using it all the time, the microphone and the light and all of this. Uh, but you may not have a, much of an idea how it's working. But you need people who are specialists in this field. And everybody else can keep using it. Similarly, in spirituality also you need specialists. It could be a, 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 a priest, a, a, an imam, a, a theologian, you know, church father. And among specialists also there may be a, like super specialists who do only that and nothing else. So their quest is enlightenment, God realization and, and nothing else. And there may be such people. So some religions have strong monastic traditions. Now these values are of use for everybody. Everybody does not have to be a monk. Everybody can and I think should be spiritual. Everybody can be spiritual and should be spiritual. Everybody can and should search for God. Um, not everybody can or should become a monk. It's not necessary. But the teachings, the monastic values are of great help in those who are on a spiritual path. Uh, what is the help there? I tell the story of the monkey. The one you know, used to come and steal vegetables from the farmer. And the farmer couldn't prevent it. So how to trap the mischievous monkey? So he devised a trap in which he put a vegetable inside a narrow-necked bottle. And the monkey came, crept down the tree and came and put its hand inside the bottle and grabbed the vegetable. And was trying to pull it up. Of course the vegetable got stuck. Because it's a narrow-necked bottle. It's just enough for its little hand to go in. And of course if you maneuver it in a particular way, the vegetable itself might come out also. But it's very difficult. And the farmer started running out of his uh, hut with a stick to beat the monkey. Now, now the monkey can escape. 
It can let go of the vegetable, pull out its hand and run away and climb the tree. But greed can't let go. And now the monkey is to be thrashed. The only way the monkey can escape the thrashing of samsara is for the monkey to become a monk. <laughs> that means to let go. To let go. <laughs> if you don't let go, that's the problem. Swami Vivekananda says, Thine only is the hand that holds the rope that drags thee on. Let go thy hold, sannyasi bold. Say Om Tat Sat Om. Can't blame God, can't blame samsara. You can't even blame samsara. Can't even blame the world. This is the way the world is designed. It can be a little worse and a little better. But it's going to be like this. It has been. In spite of avatars and uh, teachers and masters and prophets, the world still is like this. A little better maybe. That's all. You have to um, save yourself. So what are the values? The essential nature of, of being a monk is renunciation. Remember, not even without being a monk, being in the world, Bhagavad Gita, is taught by Krishna who is a householder to Arjuna who is a householder and after being taught the Gita both remain householders they don't become monks in fact in between the beginning Arjuna was sort of suggesting that he could become a monk Bhikshacharyam Charanti says I can go and live on arms Krishna tells him no if you want to be a successful worldly man you have to be in the middle of this if you want to be successful in spiritual life you still have to be in the middle of this so, uh, even if you are not that super specialized kind who wants only God, if you want that, well and good, we welcome you with open arms. But if you don't want that, if, or you want, many people cannot because they are in such social circumstances, it's not practically possible to become a monk. But you can internally become monk-like. One has to become monk-like. You don't have to become literally, even a monk has to be monk-like. If a monk is worldly, then no greater disaster than that. The Gita says, Mithyachara Sahutyate. This is called hypocrisy. To sit quietly with withdrawing from the world of action and then think of the things one can get by, through the world of action. That's a kind of, uh, that's hypocrisy. Instead of that, it's better to be engaged in action. But imbibe the values of monasticism internally. Be monk-like internally. What does that consist of? Sri Ramakrishna was very clear. Kam Kanchon Tag. The renunciation. Renunciation of what? Renunciation of acquisition of wealth and the pursuit of lust. He was pretty blunt about it. These are the two places where most people are, most everybody, anybody who feels trapped, bound in samsara, at the root are these two. That somehow, in some sensory way, sensual way, world will give me pleasure and um, that will give me fulfillment. That's one. The other one, by accumulating stuff in the world. It could be property, it could be um, wealth, it could start by just being what is called in the US especially a pack rat. You know, keep accumulating stuff. Why do people want to live in the midst of so much trash? It's, it's that desire to have. Where does it come from? It, oh, see, oh, even these desires, they are rooted in uh, your nature as Satchidananda, Sat being. I don't know myself as being. The more stuff I have, I feel my being expanding. I have more. I am more. It could just be rubbish. You notice, sometimes unfortunate, mentally ill person, homeless, lugging along a huge uh, sack of stuff. So, 
Is it that poor person's essential stuff? No, not it's not essential stuff. It's random garbage picked up from here and there. Why? I am more with stuff, and that is really relevant to the United States. Very overrun with stuff. When it, your house is overrun, it goes into a garage. When there is no space for the car in the garage, it goes into a unique creation of the United States: storage space. <laughs> People buy storage space, big, big places. Where it's just what's there, just stuff. <laughs> for what? For nothing. Just for being there. It is very philosophical. Pure being, existence itself. <laughs> that is kanchana. Sri Ramakrishna calls it gold. Pursuit of gold means this. And um, then the other one is kama. Sensual pleasure. It is rooted in our nature as ananda. Our nature is bliss. We don't like being unhappy. We don't like being miserable. We don't like unpleasant stuff. We like being pleasant and happy and pleasurable. Everything nice. So that comes from our real nature because it is nice. It is full of bliss, ananda, but misperceived, limited, and chasing it in the world out, going out with a begging bowl in hand for handouts from the world. For happiness, what do you want? What are you here for? Like a beggar, give me happiness. A little bit of happiness from a person, from an activity, from a hobby, from from this body, from sophisticated stuff like cultivating the arts and sciences and all from the mind. Now remember, this is a dangerous doctrine. I am not decrying Wall Street, uh, uh, the economy. Uh, I am not decrying Broadway. Uh, neither the Uh, boutique fashion shops, not the. Somebody said Manhattan is a foodies place. Food, or the high music and art in, say, Juilliard and the Broadway theater and all. No, 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 no. I'm making a much more subtle point. They do what they are designed to do. When we invest in them a huge load, a demand of make me perfectly happy, they are helpless. They are not designed to do that. Do we make such a demand? It sounds silly when you say, say it. For example, nobody ever should be unhappy. Should be rude to me. Nobody ever. Everybody should all the time be consistently, unremittingly nice and pleasant to me. You say that's ridiculous, but that's what we feel. No, I don't feel that, Swami. But why do we get upset when one person at one time is a little rude to me? We remember that. Even when we we forgive, it's all right. I forgive. I don't mind. But we still remember it. It hurts. Why? Deep inside is this unexamined belief: the world owes us happiness. So, renunciation of gold, renunciation of lust—that that is fundamental renunciation. With that can come all kinds of other renunciation, um, but it's a good principle. Even in the world, as a householder, can I minimize? Can I have this old adage of simple living and high thinking? Believe me, simple living and high thinking is the um, formula for happiness. We do the, just the opposite: high living and <laughs> low thinking. <laughs> Swami Vivekananda said. Um, That he said is this mixture of childlike simplicity and utter seriousness, 
And if you look at Vivekananda, he's exactly like that. Some his American devotees and followers used to say he was like this great big boy, and it's a mixture of, it's a combination of childlike simplicity and utter seriousness. We do exactly the opposite. We are extremely complex and utterly shallow, and therefore unhappiness. We become complicated creatures and our lives are utterly shallow. Our thought lives, our intellectual lives, the way we lead our lives is shallow. And as people, the way we behave with each other and our, towards ourselves, very complex. That's why, you know, everybody has a therapist in New York or used to <laughs> a few decades ago. Just luckily going out of style. So these are the values. The central value of uh, being a monk is renunciation. H how much can you do without um, practically, how does that work? One is uh, have less. Imitation of Christ is a very monastic book. It says, if you want peace, my child, always seek to have less rather than more. The exact opposite of what we do. Always seek to have less rather than more. One. If you want peace, my child, all, do these four things. One, always seek to have less rather than more. Always seek to be last rather than first. <laughs> In matters of taking credit, in matters of consumption, let others enjoy, let others get credit. And uh, in, I've seen, it's not a spiritual thing only. People who are respected, great people in any organization, could be a business organization, could be a scientific or academic organization, they follow these principles. Not consciously, they come to it automatically. And they are respected in that organization, a scientific organization, a commercial organization, a business empire. Simple life, um, putting others forward, not myself. Is he less successful because of that? Not at all. They're usually the top people. And somebody said, yeah, this is just because they're at the top, they had the luxury of doing these things. We have to climb to the top and shove people aside. We can't afford to be last rather than first. So always seek to be last rather than first. Then third one, in all matters of opinion, do the, the will of another rather than your own. Matters of opinion, not matters of value or of ethics. They stick to it. Matters of opinion, don't fight. Seek to do the will of others. You will find peace. And the last one, most difficult, each is in, these are in order of difficulty. First one, always seek to have less rather than more. Difficult but doable. Second one, always seek to be last rather than first. More subtle, more difficult. Third one, always seek to, in matters of opinion, always seek to do the uh, will of others rather than your own more difficult and the last one is most difficult but most powerful in all matters try to see and accept the will of God because it's the truth whatever happens here is literally the will of God you may not like it you will like it well fine good for you you may not like it can't be helped but George Bernard Shaw a lady a little old lady came up to him and said Grandly, you know, there's a sense of great achievement. Um, I, ha I accept the universe. And George Bernard Shaw is reputed to have replied, By God, madam, you better. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is, these are the practices uh, for monasticism. Yeah. One Swami was asked in the Himalayas, he asked the question to the people sitting around him. What is the characteristic of a monk? And somebody, people gave different answers. Somebody said, Brahma Jnana. 
the knowledge of Brahman. Enlightenment is the characteristic of a monk. Um, the Swami said, no, enlightenment is possible for everybody. A householder also can be enlightened. Then what's the characteristic of a monk? As our sadhu said, that the teacher, tyag, renunciation, letting go, externally even letting go. Internally, of course. Internally, monk-like, everybody should be. For a spiritual seeker, you automatically will become monk-like. In fact, if you are a great writer, you become ascetic. You are a great scholar, you become ascetic. You are a great scientist, an artist, you become ascetic. With, except with regard to your art, everything else you, it drops away. You can't, you can't achieve uh, greatness without that. You don't even have to deliberately do it. Your passion to, for that will make everything else drop away. So that's the best kind of renunciation. When your passion for something high lets everything else drop away, but if you calculatedly kick out this thing, kick out that thing, it can become artificial. Then we can talk more about this. Um, I think we have run out of time. We should stop here. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu